A former White House aide testifies today that on January 6th, then-President Trump wanted to let protesters move toward the Capitol building, even though he knew they were armed with semi-automatic weapons. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, June 28th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, abortion remains illegal in many states after the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. But some clinics are up and running again after they won at least temporary victories in state court. President Biden's Health and Human Services Secretary is vowing to protect women's reproductive health in states that prohibit abortion. If those states receive Medicare funding, they must still abide by federal law, which in some cases provides women access with abortion care services. Also, what's up with a shrinking number of commercial airline pilots? These stories and Wall Street numbers are next. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Courtney Keeley. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection heard explosive testimony today that demonstrated then-President Donald Trump's state of mind on the day of the attack. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports a top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows detailed a series of events, including the incendiary speech Trump delivered that day near the White House. Cassidy Hutchinson testified that she overheard Trump saying that he didn't care if his supporters had come with weapons, demanding that the Secret Service take away standard security measures, like metal detectors. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Mags, as in magnetometers. Hutchinson also testified that Trump became irate when he was told that he wouldn't be taken to the Capitol and tried to grab the limousine steering wheel. Hutchinson said it was then that Trump lunged at a member of his Secret Service detail. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Military medical facilities will continue to perform some abortions in states that ban the procedure. A Defense Department memo released Tuesday says the overturn of Roe v. Wade won't affect service or services or insurance for military families. Carson Frame of Texas Public Radio reports. The Defense Department and TRICARE can only perform and pay for abortions in cases of rape, incest, or threat to the life of the pregnant person. Several states, like Texas, forbid abortions in those situations, making the Pentagon's policy more permissive than the state's. The Pentagon says it will provide lawyers for Defense Department personnel who perform abortions in states where the procedure is banned. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. At least 50 people have died in what authorities are calling a tragic human smuggling incident. Dozens of bodies discovered in an abandoned tractor trailer outside San Antonio. As NPR's Carrie Kahn reports, Mexico's president says at least 22 were from his country. President Andres Manuel López Obrador offered his condolences to relatives. He called the incident a catastrophe and said Mexican authorities would assist in the investigation. He says 22 Mexicans, seven Guatemalans, and two Hondurans were initially identified among the dead. According to officials, the tractor-trailer originated from Laredo and traveled north packed with people. Once abandoned on a road, a worker heard cries and opened the doors alerting authorities. There was no water or air conditioning inside the trailer. Sixteen people inside were transported to hospitals for heat stroke, including four minors. President Lopez Obrador says he plans to meet with President Biden in Washington on July 12th and will discuss migration. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Mexico City. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are reacting to today's testimony by former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. Congressman Jim McGovern tweets that Trump sent the mob to the U.S. Capitol to kill members of Congress. He also says the allegation that Trump assaulted a Secret Service agent who refused to redirect the presidential motorcade toward the Capitol on January 6th shows why Trump, quote, must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city and school system are ready to remedy problems within the district. The city and state board of elementary and secondary education reached a last-minute deal that prevented Boston public schools from being labeled as underperforming. Speaking today, board member Michael Moriarty says he thinks that was the wrong move and that Massachusetts should have placed the school system under state receivership. Improving a huge organization like the Boston Public Schools is like turning around a giant ship. It takes a lot of time and effort. Instead of starting the work immediately after a quick negotiation, a month was lost, and that's too much time. Under the agreement, the city will get $10 million in assistance and the state will hire an independent auditor. People in Massachusetts are generally happy with the state's strict gun laws, but there is broad support across the political spectrum for tighter gun laws at the federal level. That's according to a new survey of 1,000 residents led by UMass Amherst and WCVB. UMass political scientist Ray LaRaja says a majority of respondents also want the state to maintain its process for acquiring a concealed carry permit. Anyone seeking that kind of permit has to go through local law enforcement, but a recent Supreme Court decision could threaten the process. It'll be a challenging legislative issue, but Massachusetts voters seem to support making it as hard as it is right now. Nearly two-thirds of the people surveyed in the polls say they would back a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Unionized workers at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts have ratified their first collective bargaining agreement with the museum. The deal includes employee pay increases. Workers said compensation and the region's rising cost of living were major concerns driving the unionization effort. In a statement, museum leaders say the deal is fair and will make the MFA a stronger organization. In the forecast, 73 degrees now. If you passing clouds overnight tonight, temperatures in the low 60s should be a beautiful day tomorrow. Mostly sunny, temperatures in the low 80s with a chance of showers tomorrow night. Then Thursday, lots of sunshine in the mid-80s. It's 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There was stunning testimony on Capitol Hill today. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. She was the top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and she was by his side throughout the day on January 6th and in the days leading up to the riots. She gave a firsthand account of former President Trump's participation, saying he planned to lead a crowd to the Capitol knowing they were armed. As people rallied near the White House that day, armed with automatic weapons and body armor, here's how she described Trump's reaction to learning they were being stopped at magnetometers. Take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from, they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell followed today's hearing. Hi, Kelsey. Hi there. Let's start with that scene that played out at the rally near the White House before the riots at the Capitol. 
This was a turning point on January 6th. What new information did Hutchinson provide? Yeah, this was a turning point because there, the, the violence that moved to the Capitol really started as uh, as a, a rally there. And this was kind of a surprise hearing. This was information that we weren't expecting to hear this week. Um, we didn't know that Hutchinson was going to be testifying um, until late last night. Now, I should say she's on, only just now 25, and she was a senior advisor in the White House. She was very close to former President Trump and very close uh, to his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And she described a firsthand account of Trump and Meadows that day. She explained conversations she had with other top Trump advisors who were with the former president that day as well. You know, one of the most stunning moments to me was her account of what happened when Trump was told he could not go to the Capitol. She recounted a conversation with Tony Ornato, who oversaw all of the security at the White House. He described a scene in the president's limousine known as the Beast while the rally at the Ellipse was happening when his Secret Service detail, Bobby Engel, refused to let him join the crowd at the Capitol. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. She described hearing that he put his hands around Bobby Engel's neck. To be clear, she is describing a physical altercation that the president had with the head of his Secret Service protective detail after being told he couldn't go. Hands around his neck. Yeah. This, this She described his hands by his clavicle. This is unheard of. And, you know, she also described another moment where Trump's anger really exploded in the run-up to January 6th. This time it was after Trump learned that former Attorney General William Barr gave an interview where he said there was no election fraud. She described Trump leaving a chaotic room with ketchup splattering the walls and a broken plate after an explosion of anger. And she said it was not the first time Trump had had a similarly violent response. Now, we heard that cut of tape where the president seemed to express a view that people with weapons could go ahead and march to the Mm -hmm. Capitol. To what extent was he aware of his team's concerns about his participation in this violent scene? Well, according to Hutchinson, he was made aware several times by several different people. She describes Meadows saying that Trump was not interested in hearing their arguments and rebuffed any attempt to redirect Trump. Um, She also described struggling to get Meadows to listen or engage. She talked to about him staring at his phone and not paying attention. You know, at one point she talked about uh, Meadows shutting her out of a secure vehicle for 20 minutes as she tried to get him critical information from security advisors about the situation at the Capitol. She also described a stark warning from Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if... We make that movement happen. He also reportedly told Meadows there would be blood on his hands if he didn't get Trump to stop the riots. What about that chant, hang Mike Pence, Mm. that the rioters were chanting at the Capitol? Uh, What did we learn about Trump's reaction to that? Well, a reminder that we learned earlier in the testimony at previous hearings that those rioters were only about 40 feet away from Pence at one point. And Trump said that they were right and they weren't doing anything wrong. Um, we we heard that Hutchinson, Hutchinson testified that Meadows told her that Trump didn't want to do anything to stop the 
the rioters, and that he thinks, the quote was, he thinks Mike deserves it. This hearing today raised a lot of new questions and opened a lot of new lines of questioning. So where is it likely to go from here? Well, uh, we have heard that this they could be continuing to pursue people who sought pardons. Hutchinson testified that both Meadows and uh, Trump advisor Rudy Giuliani asked for pardons. They joined a growing list, including Republican lawmakers who have sought pardons before and after the 6th. And she talked about witness intimidation, people trying to push what witnesses said in their depositions it looked like intimidation. Uh, people spoke of loyalty and warned one witness that Trump reads every transcript. It's NPR's Kelsey Snell. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Abortion remains illegal in many states after the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, but some abortion providers have opened their doors again today after winning at least temporary victories in state courts. One of those states is Louisiana. A judge there issued a restraining order yesterday blocking that state's trigger bans. NPR's Sarah McCammon is there, and she joins us now from outside Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport, Louisiana. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Iwana. Sarah, Louisiana is just one of the many states in the U.S. with abortion bans on the books. Tell us about the legal fights that are playing out across this country. Right. So in response to many states activating these bans one way or another, lawyers with groups like the ACLU and the Center for Reproductive Rights have been challenging abortion bans in several states on different grounds. In many cases, they've been appealing to state constitutions, which they argue offer protections for abortion rights, even if the U.S. Constitution, according to this Supreme Court, may not. In Louisiana, they argue that it was unclear which of the multiple abortion bans were in place and also that those themselves are confusing. And it seems like there's been some success already. What does that mean for these clinics? Right. So far, abortions have resumed, at least for now, in Utah, at some clinics, I'm told, in Texas, and here in Shreveport, Louisiana. Staff members have spent the past day or so calling patients back for procedures, which they resumed today. This is Kathleen. How may I help you? At Hope Medical Group for Women, things were almost back to normal this morning, at least a new normal. After shutting down on Friday in response to the Supreme Court's ruling, the clinic won a restraining order from a state judge on Monday and immediately began calling patients back. Thank goodness. I was just really happy to hear that I could still come. Jay, a patient who asked us to call her only by her first initial because she's worried about stigma in her small Texas town, was relieved when she got word she could still come today. At 27, she's a mom to three young boys already, she says she has a history of difficult pregnancies, which have landed her in the hospital again and again. I want to walk away from this feeling better because right now I feel uh, extremely sick and I'm unable to function and take care of my kids that I do have. Jay had been watching the Supreme Court closely and had scheduled a backup appointment at a clinic in New Mexico in case abortion became illegal here in Louisiana. I was really scared. I thought I was going to have to travel 12 hours to Albuquerque because of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I had a panic attack that day. But along with about three dozen other patients, she was able to get in for her procedure today. And then you'll fill out the card. Make sure your phone is on uh, silent for the time and no pictures. Staff members have been busy helping patients get checked in and making calls to schedule more procedures through next week. The judge has given them at least until July 8th when a hearing is scheduled. Even so, clinic workers are being incredibly careful. 
Outside in the parking lot, Jamie Cantrell, a volunteer escort, says she tells patients to back into the parking spaces so their license plates aren't available. Sometimes folks will come out with cameras and take photographs. Louisiana's Republican Attorney General has said he will fight to defend the state's abortion bans. Sarah Zagorski, communications director with Louisiana Right to Life, says she's confident abortion will soon be banned here. It's going to get dismissed and our Louisiana law will stand. There's nothing vague about our 2022 Reaffirmation of Human Life Protection Act. In our opinion, they're just really pulling at straws to try to keep their doors open. Clinic administrator Kathleen Pittman acknowledges she may have to close her doors eventually, but in the nearly three decades she's worked here, she's learned to stay focused on what's in front of her now. It's just a way of life. I can't imagine coming to work in the morning and not having something hanging over my head. So we're concentrating on our patients right now, doing the best we can for them, and we'll deal with whatever we need to deal with as it comes. So, Sarah, what is the next step for these legal battles over abortion bans? Well, that's going to vary somewhat from state to state. Joanna Wright is an attorney representing the Hope Medical Group here in Shreveport. Here's what she said. Each state has a different statutory schema and a different trigger ban, but it is absolutely a strategy right now to be evaluating and challenging each of these trigger laws nationwide. And Wright argues that all of Louisiana's anti-abortion laws are unclear, and she says they're therefore out of step with the state constitution. She expects similar legal fights in other states. NPR Sarah McCammon in Shreveport, Louisiana. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Singer R. Kelly is about to be sentenced nine months after a conviction on racketeering and sex trafficking charges and decades after abuse accusations first surfaced. When you look at the extent of the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that he put these women and children through, I think a 25-year or more sentence is entirely appropriate. The long push for justice for R. Kelly's victims tomorrow on Morning Edition. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, what it was like to be a passenger on the Amtrak train that derailed on Monday in Missouri. On Wall Street, stocks took a dive today. The Dow fell more than 1.5%, 490 points, to close at 30,947. S&P dropped 2% to settle at 3822. The Nasdaq fell 3% to finish the day at 11,182. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by 1776 at the ART. See the revival of the Tony-winning musical that WBUR called Electrifying, now through July 24th, amrep.org. A Boston-based venture capital firm says it will use $10.5 million in new funding to boost tech startups led by women and people of color. Visible Hands today announced that it raised the funds over the past 18 months. It says the groups it hopes to help have been overlooked by venture capital in the past. The firm runs an accelerator program that aims to help entrepreneurs grow their businesses. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best. With local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier, direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen, redsbest.com. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital. 
nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. It is your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June Fund Drive. Your $500 gift becomes $1,500. Give now at WBUR.org, and thank you so much. Beautiful day today becomes a nice night. Just some fair weather clouds around, lows about 60. Tomorrow, sunshine, warmer temperatures should break into the 80s. 73 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Jihee Ha, a member of the NPR Foundation Board of Trustees, working to help provide the highest quality public service journalism to communities across the USA. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the span of just a few hours, the country took two big steps in different directions on guns last week. On Thursday morning, the Supreme Court struck down a century-old law limiting concealed carry permits in New York. The decision signaled that state and local restrictions around the country might be next. Later in the day, the Senate passed the first major federal gun legislation in three decades. The bill would toughen up background checks for gun buyers between 18 and 21, expand a prohibition on gun purchases by those convicted of domestic abuse, and send hundreds of millions of dollars towards mental health and school safety resources. To understand the real-world impact of these changes, we're joined now by Daniel Webster of Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on policies intended to reduce gun violence. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. To start with the action in Congress, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, uh, is one of the sponsors of the Senate legislation, and he says this bill will save thousands of lives. Is he right? Well, I certainly hope so. I definitely think that the overall package will lead to less gun violence and therefore translate into lives saved. How many really uh, will be determined on on how these policies get implemented? A lot of this is a spending bill of pumping dollars into localities uh, to address gun violence, and how they actually use those resources will determine their ultimate impact. Which provision do you think is likely to potentially have the biggest impact? The things that I'm focused on right now is uh, addressing the uh, so-called dating partner gap in uh, domestic violence misdemeanor prohibitions. We know that domestic violence these days or intimate partner violence is much more likely to involve dating partners than than spouses. And if you look at the data, that's really where we should be focused. So I'm very pleased to see that gap addressed. Many of the provisions in the legislation seem designed to address mass shootings like the one in Uvalde, Texas. As horrific as those shootings are, they actually make up a small percentage of total gun deaths. Do you think that focus makes sense if we're trying to reduce gun violence around the country? Well, certainly mass shootings are important, even though they're small proportionally to the larger problem of gun violence. But I think you're absolutely right that what our country desperately needs is legislation and policymaking that really looks at the totality of gun violence that affects our communities. One thing we did not talk about is that there is $250 million being allocated for community violence intervention programs. I think that definitely will translate into less gun violence in most uh, affected communities. I'm thinking $250 million, that's like 
not a lot per big city. <laughs> I'm not sure how far that goes in a, in a country as big as the United States. Definitely, that's you're you're absolutely correct, and I think it's also important to sort of hold that in contrast to the 750 million that's directed more at the problem of uh, of mass shooting. So you can yeah. look at those two dollar allocations to see the mismatch of what gun violence looks like in America and what our policymakers are responding to. Even as the Senate was taking this step to limit gun violence, the Supreme Court expanded access to guns. How effective were concealed carry laws like the one in New York that the justices overturned? Well, they were effective. This is one of the most studied forms of gun policy. What that research shows is that when states do what the Supreme Court says now they must do, that that translates into more gun violence. Is there any way to look at the totality of these actions by Congress and the Supreme Court and judge what the upshot is, whether it will ultimately lead to more or less gun violence in the United States? Well, uh, I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't. But, you know, my gut tells me uh, that long term, uh, we may see more harm than good from what transpired in, in recent days. It's Daniel Webster, co-director of the Center for Gun Violence Solutions at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you. Thank you. When we first tried to reach Charles Hoffman yesterday afternoon, he was in the back of an ambulance. Hoffman was one of close to 300 people on board an Amtrak train. It was traveling from Los Angeles to Chicago yesterday when it collided with a dump truck in rural Missouri. The intersection was an unguarded crossing. No gates or bells, just a simple stop sign marked railroad crossing. Four people were killed, including the truck's driver, and over 100 were injured, including Charles Hoffman. He goes by Chad, and we were able to get him on the line today. Hi, Chad. Hello. First of all, I just want to ask, how are you doing? Are you doing all right? You know, I feel blessed to be alive, but bumped up, bruised up, and kind of tattered and sore. At 400 pounds, I had a hard time uh, getting out of that train yesterday. It was hell on earth. Okay. So... What was the moment of the collision like? Tell us what happened. Well, I, I was riding backwards, so that was a blessing because I didn't fly forward on the impact. But all I heard was a bam, bang, boom. And then all of a sudden the train dropped down, which I felt was probably when it went off track. And then it was like bam, 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 riding down the wood a little bit, the wood railroad ties. And then all of a sudden we started going over, going over. It felt like forever that went over. And then it hit down and broke out my window, and then it was all... Hell broke loose because I was laying down there on the bottom side with all the rocks coming through the window from the train track. You said it went over and, and over. Did your your car overturn then? It overturned. It overturned, fell to the left, fell down all the way down and skidded, skidded, skidded forever, I felt like anyway. And when it did stop, what happened then? How did you get out of that train car? Well, to tell you the truth, I was laying there. I had a couple pillows just to get my bearings and it was so dusty. And I'm on oxygen, by the way. So I, I, all I heard was, are you okay? Anybody in here? I'm like, I'm in here. And I, I had a long ways to go to get out, but I just kind of rolled my way out. I'm a big guy. And then I kind of pushed my way up. I, thought, I felt like I had Hercules strength with my adrenaline pumping. I got to the top of the train. We were up there for quite a while because they weren't bringing any ladders for a long time. And then a big guy down on the bottom talked me into walking down the big rail wheels. And that was really hard. But at the last second, He's like, just let go, I'll catch you. Some big guy under me, let go and I'll catch you. And I'm like, are you sure? I mean, <laughs> right, anyway, excuse me. But uh, he uh, caught me. So I was like, 
I got down. What happened after you got out? What happened then? They finally got me to the hospital. They checked me in. They got me in quick because they thought I was having cardiac cardiac symptoms because of my heart rate was so high. My blood pressure was really elevated. I had the cold sweat, so they thought something was really wrong. So they got me in, and actually it was just everything checked out for the most part, and then it was a long day in the ER. Hmm. Chad, not everyone chooses to travel by train when they do. What made you choose Amtrak for the trip that you took yesterday? Absolutely. Good question. At 400 pounds, I can't really fly. If I did, I'd have to buy two seats. Probably I can't afford that. So mainly, I can't fly. I mean, I did enjoy Amtrak. This is the third time I've done it. I will say I'll never be on a train again for many years, many, many years. Mm. The whole night when I was trying to fall asleep, I kept getting flashbacks and like visuals and things running through my head and it made it very hard to sleep. But I'm okay, I'm alive and I'm sitting in a recliner actually drinking a Diet Coke and actually feeling averagely decent right now. So I guess that's a blessing. That's Chad Hoffman. He was aboard the Amtrak train that derailed in rural Missouri. Thanks so much, Chad. Glad you're safe. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A beautiful day becomes a nice night tonight. Just some fair weather clouds around. Lows about 60 degrees. Tomorrow and Thursday should be beautiful. Lots of sunshine. A good deal warmer. Tomorrow should reach 83. Thursday could make it to 85 degrees. Join Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's podcast, Circle Round, Saturday, July 9th at City Space to celebrate the launch of Circle Round's picture books. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. Lee Pelton, President and CEO of the Boston Foundation. We've chosen to underwrite on WBUR as an effective way to highlight a new generation of community leaders in our city. When we value their voices and lived experiences, these talented, diverse leaders inspire us to see challenges that we once saw as too expensive or too complex to solve can be addressed after all. For more information, go to tbf.org slash civic leadership. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Washington, the select committee investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last year heard compelling and explosive testimony today that demonstrated the state of mind of then-President Donald Trump on the day of the attack. Cassidy Hutchinson was a top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She detailed a series of events, including hearing Trump say that he didn't care if his supporters had come with weapons, demanding that the Secret Service ditch standard security, starting with metal detectors. I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Hutchinson also testified that Trump became irate when he was told he wouldn't be taken to the Capitol and tried to grab the limousine driver's steering wheel. 
The Michigan Supreme Court says the state did not act properly when it indicted several former officials in connection with the water crisis in Flint. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports. Last year, a county judge indicted Michigan's former director of Health and Human Services on charges of involuntary manslaughter in connection with the contamination that tainted Flint's water supply. The judge served as a one-person grand jury, examining evidence and witnesses in secret. But Michigan's high court says a judge can issue subpoenas and arrest warrants, but not an indictment, and add that the process denied several former state officials of their right to a preliminary hearing. The attorney general wanted to proceed directly to a trial that could include former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. Now the justices have sent the cases in question back to the county court for reconsideration. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street as consumer confidence slipped for the second month in a row. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House could vote as early as tomorrow on a bill that protects health care providers and their patients from legal action by other states. The bill declares that access to reproductive and gender-affirming care are rights secured by the Constitution or the laws of Massachusetts. It would bar police from providing information or assistance to private citizens, out-of-state or federal agencies looking to take action against people for services provided legally in Massachusetts. It also increases access to emergency contraception. The mRNA coronavirus vaccines are most effective in people who are pregnant when they're administered in the first and third trimesters. That's according to new research from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Mass General Hospital. Dr. Andrea Edlow is a high-risk obstetrician at Mass General and co-author of the study. In the second trimester, still the immune response was present, but many you know ways in which these antibodies do their job was a little bit more damped down. Dr. Edlow says this doesn't mean people who are unvaccinated and pregnant should not get vaccinated during their second trimester. She says pregnant women should be vaccinated as soon as possible. Studies have concluded the coronavirus vaccine is safe and protective for both the parent and the fetus. Communities around South Boston's Moakley Park are getting some financial help to protect the area against rising sea levels and flooding caused by climate change. At a news conference today announcing the funding, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says the area provides people critical housing and access to transportation. A storm surge of 40 inches in this area would affect more than 35,000 people. As our climate changes, so must we. The area around Moakley Park is set to undergo a $250 million overhaul over the next decade. The city is also shoring up other waterfront parks. And a private vigil will be held tonight for one of the three teenagers killed in a car crash in western Massachusetts over the weekend. The vigil tonight for 17-year-old Dominic Gardner of Oxford will happen at a football field near Webster. 17-year-old Vincent Ardazzoni and 18-year-old Shane Douglas were also killed. A fourth teenager went to the hospital with serious injuries. It's 434. WBUR supporters include New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Enjoy live music, a beer garden, fun games, and sunset views on Thursday summer evenings. NEBG.org. Nice weather continues through midweek. Tonight, a few clouds, about 60 for low. Tomorrow, sunny, dry, 83. Thursday, sunshine again, the mid-80s tops. 73 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. 
Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Rock Auto, an online auto parts store with everything from complex electrical parts for modern daily drivers to new brake shoes for old favorites. More at rockauto.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Almost immediately after last week's Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, President Biden condemned the decision. And today, his Health and Human Services Secretary vowed to take steps to protect women's reproductive health. He called last week's ruling, quote, despicable. Secretary Javier Becerra joins us now. Welcome back, Mr. Secretary, to All Things Considered. Juana, thanks for having me. You've said that you want to take every action necessary to protect women's reproductive health care. What sort of actions is the administration prepared to take now? Well, we want women first to know that the Friday decision by the Supreme Court didn't eliminate their rights. It did make it more difficult for them to exercise them. And so we want to make sure, first and foremost, that Americans have correct information. But secondly, we want them to know that we will work with our our partners at the local level, public and private, to make sure that women continue to receive the reproductive care that they need. As I understand, when this decision came down, you were in the state of Missouri at the last remaining abortion site in that state. Tell us what it was like there. I was scheduled to be in St. Louis to visit with uh, the Planned Parenthood program. The word came out that the Supreme Court ruling had been issued. You could see the silence, the shock, the tears. It was clear that this had a a very impactful resonance with those who were in that room. Hmm. You've said that you plan to do what you can at the federal level. Help us understand in a little bit more detail what that might look like. The reality of the tale of two cities here in America today is that you can be in one state and not have the rights to receive abortion care and just cross the state line and still have that care. And what we're going to try to do is make sure that whatever options a woman has available to her, we'll try to help her exercise those options. So she needs to travel. We're going to try to be supportive of those who are trying to help make that possible. We're going to do what we can, although it's unclear exactly what we can do in all the states because not all the states have acted. As you point out, people in many states, as the situation is in Missouri and neighboring Illinois, they now have to travel for other states for abortion procedures. How can they be sure that they won't be prosecuted when they return home? Well, that's where getting the right information, correct information becomes so important. And that's why we wanted to speak out early to let people know that they still have rights. And there are certain obligations that states have, regardless of what the Dobbs decision says. And so in those states that have now banned abortion, if those states receive Medicaid funding, they must still abide by federal law, which in some cases provides women access with abortion care services. One thing that I've heard from a number of progressive Democrats on Capitol Hill is they've suggested a a list of actions they'd like to see the administration lean into. One of the things that has come up a number of times is the idea of building abortion clinics on federal land. Is that the sort of proposal that you could see yourself supporting at some point in the future? We are aware of different proposals to try to uh, locate some of these clinics in places that would not be subject to those state laws that ban abortion. Uh, We are looking at every uh, option. We haven't made any decisions yet, but we are certainly familiar with some of those options that are being discussed. You've said repeatedly that you want to ensure that people have the correct information, that they have accurate information about what their rights are right now. What is the best way for them to get that information? Is it through HHS? Is there somewhere they should be looking? Certainly, first and foremost, 
speak to those who you trust for medical advice. Then if you're needing more information, uh, certainly the folks at Planned Parenthood offer uh, tremendously helpful information. And then of course, they certainly can reach out to uh, HHS. If they go to reproductiverights.gov, they will access information that we make available to try to explain much of this information. I know that you have been focused on the policy aspects of this in the law, but I do have to ask you one political question. Republicans in this country have spent the last 50 years working to end the right to an abortion in America. Do you feel that the Democratic Party, do you feel that leaders in Washington have done enough to protect that right so far? Well, I would simply say that as Americans, it is incumbent on us to protect the rights of Americans. When I served in Congress for 24 years, my efforts were always to try to be inclusive and protect people's rights, not to be exclusive and strip people of rights. And so to watch the Supreme Court move unconscionably to strip so many millions of Americans of their rights to healthcare uh, is, as I said before, not only despicable, but it, I don't believe will last because I don't think that's what America is about. Javier Becerra is the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been nearly a week since an earthquake hit a remote, impoverished corner of Afghanistan, killing hundreds of people. The disaster has mobilized Afghans to help each other, as NPR's Dia Hadid reports. When the earthquake shook the district of Burmal, it caused Raji Gul's house to collapse over his sleeping family. It killed his son and daughter, and he was trapped. He says, I tried calling for help, but I was buried under the mud. It was coming into my mouth. Ghul was ultimately pulled out by relatives. It's stories like this of parents losing children, others left orphaned, that has mobilised Afghans. In the capital, Kabul, a microphone blares out Islamic music mixed with pleas for help for the earthquake's victims. The microphone is atop a tent in a Kabul neighbourhood. Inside is Parwiz Hamdad. He's collecting cash, clothes, pots, pads, whatever Afghans can give. And he says Afghans are giving what they can. It makes us so happy because people here are very poor. But still, Afghans come and donate for their people. As Hamdard speaks to NPR producer Fazal Manallah Kazizai, a man walks over and drops 40 Afghanis into a collection box. That's about four cents. It buys about four pieces of bread. The man donating is Mohammed Bilal Shaheen. He's 23, unemployed. I donated what I could. We've got to help those people as much as we can. Hamdard says it's been like this since he began yesterday. He says people aren't just giving from what little they have. They're giving to people outside their own communities. He says that's no small thing in Afghanistan, where minorities have viewed each other with mistrust for decades. The earthquake's victims are from Afghanistan's Pashtun community, but the people donating to them in this area are mostly Uzbek and Hazara Afghans. It was a good experience for us to see. Afghans, Hazara, Uzbek, Pashtuns, they want to help each other. 
On the road to Kabul to areas destroyed by the earthquake, motorists dropped change in charity boxes at rest stops. Hamdard says Afghans are showing their unity. Leaders divide us, but we are working for one Afghanistan. This may be the most Afghans have mobilized since the Taliban seized power almost a year ago. And while the modest amounts donated by Afghans won't amount to the millions that the UN says are needed, what they're giving is symbolically important, showing that despite decades of war, there is still care and concern for each other. Dia Hadid, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. With a natural gas shortage amid Russia's war in Ukraine, fossil fuel companies are using this moment to push for new liquefied natural gas, or LNG, projects. And a lot of their lobbying is in sub-Saharan Africa, as Julia Simon reports. Mike Anderson's a VP at Dallas-based Cosmos Energy, and he's been putting a lot of miles on private jets lately. He was just in Mauritania, Senegal before that. Seeing the, the two respective presidents, some detailed conversations with them precisely on the subject of LNG. And how to speed it up. How quickly can we get our LNG to market? Europe is desperate for natural gas. Days after Anderson met with the Senegalese president, the German chancellor came to meet with him about gas deals, and energy executives are traversing sub-Saharan Africa to fast-track new projects, like in Tanzania. This month, the country signed an initial agreement with Shell for a new $30 billion LNG facility. But Silas Olang of the nonprofit Natural Resource Governance Institute says while the Ukraine war may have increased interest in the project, the first LNG in Tanzania is likely to come out around 2030. Wow, that's a long time away. <laughs> it's not any time soon. For Olang, this raises a big red flag. Just last fall at the UN Climate Conference, dozens of countries agreed to stop financing international fossil fuel projects by the end of this year. Many countries and companies have goals to reduce emissions in the coming decades. Given all that, he worries that fossil fuel companies are pumping up hope in Africa for future gas demand that may not exist. Clearly, if I look at the timelines for Tanzania production, as we reduce consumption of fossil fuel, that is when Tanzania comes into the market. Those two timelines are definitely at odds. But Anderson says you have to look at the broader context. Africa has historically contributed a small part of the emissions heating the planet. He says these countries deserve the chance to profit off their huge gas reserves and use those revenues to develop their economies. If I was an African president in many of these countries being lectured to you're not allowed to use your hydrocarbon resources in any way. We have, and we in the North have made fabulous amounts of money. We've got great economies. True, possibly in theory, but it's absolutely false in practice. Dan Kamen is an energy advisor at the U.S. Agency for International Development. He says the problem with that argument is that many of these new African LNG producers need high gas prices to keep their projects economical into the future. While gas prices are high today, that may change. If that happens, Kamen says these new players won't be able to compete against more established gas producers like Qatar or the U.S. They're going to get crowded out in the waning days of gas by the big current providers. And for many African countries hoping to build new LNG, 
Climate change is already here. Mozambique is considering more than $40 billion of new LNG projects, yet Fatima Minbire of the NGO Nueti says the country already sees increased drought and storms driven by fossil fuels. We are feeling that every day there is storms and catastrophic events affecting thousands of people in this country. This is reality. That is a fact. ExxonMobil and Italy's ENI are now readying a new gas project offshore in Mozambique. It plans to deliver its first LNG later this year. For NPR News, I'm Julia Simon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A beautiful day becomes a pretty nice night tonight. Just some fair weather clouds around, lows about 60 degrees. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine and warmer temperatures should break into the 80s. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR to stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Red Sox look to get back to their winning ways in Toronto tonight. Last night, the Blue Jays snapped the Sox seven-game winning streak. Mike Walker takes the hill for the Sox tonight. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. And Tanglewood, escape the ordinary with music by the BSO, Boston Pops, and world-renowned guest artists amidst the beauty of the Berkshire Hills. Learn more at tanglewood.org. Reverend Willie Bodrick II is the head pastor at 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury. And we had been talking about leading with the tradition of the black church behind him. And then I asked him, okay, but what about where you buck the traditions? Bringing a vaccine clinic to 12th Baptist Church, despite much well understood skepticism and concern in his parish community, which is a predominantly black parish community, about trusting the healthcare system. We did a fireside chat. Uh, you know, I don't have a beautiful studio, but I have a beautiful sanctuary where we brought in physicians to kind of answer live all the questions. And we stayed there as long as we needed to, to correct any misinformation, to deal with the distrust, and to acknowledge the pain. Understanding people's trepidations strengthens us across our communities. My name is Tiziana Deering. I'm the host of Radio Boston. Give monthly at WBUR.org, and thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the span of two weeks, I've had flights canceled twice, once to London, once to Boston. And judging by my social media feeds, lots of people are having the same experience right now. If delays and cancellations seem like the norm at this moment, well, there are lots of reasons for that. One is a shortage of pilots. During the pandemic, thousands of pilots took early retirement packages when people stopped traveling. So now that people are flying again, why hasn't pilot hiring caught up? Captain Casey Murray is president of the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, and he's here to talk about what's going on right now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why is the pool of pilots shrinking even as demand for air travel grows? Well, we started looking at pilot shortages even in 2018, 2019. We kind of forecast that this was going to be an issue. The pandemic sort of gave us a short-term reprieve, but the real problem was still there. And then, as you mentioned in the lead-in, 
having thousands of pilots take early outs, it put us in a very precarious situation. And now all of the airlines um, are trying to catch up. I imagine being a pilot is not like being a barista where a few days training can be enough to let you start the job. What does the pipeline look like? Right now, we're at an inflection point in the industry. All of the major airlines are negotiating new contracts. Um, A lot of prospective pilots really have their choice of where to go. So it's going to be whoever offers the most competitive contract, the most lucrative contract. You know, it's kind of everything's coming together at once. Hmm. But when you look at things like, you know, pilot school, training programs, things like that, are there enough people getting the skills necessary to eventually become a pilot six months a year, five years from now? Well, the short answer is no. Um, I like to call it cradle to career. And there aren't enough people entering for the demands throughout the end of the decade. And, And that's going to be a challenge. In the short term, you know, it takes 60 to 90 days to interview hire and and put a pilot through training. So the airlines have to be very proactive and they're really, um, you know, everybody's competing for the same shrinking pool. I'm kind of surprised the pool is shrinking because I remember in elementary school, every friend of mine wanted to grow up to be a pilot. It's like the dream of so many kids. Why aren't there enough people to actually do the job? I think there's two reasons. I think the airlines for the last you know, a few decades have gone through their ups and downs. There's been furloughs, and a lot of it has to do with the cost and time involved. There are socioeconomic issues that that we're hoping to address diversity-wise, you know, as we move into the future, but this has to be addressed now. Do you think this is the new reality, or are things likely to subside after we get through the peak of the summer travel season and everybody kind of gets their pent-up pandemic desire to go somewhere out of their system? I think all the airlines are working towards that. Unfortunately, this has gone on for over a year. You know, we are seeing improvements. It's going to be much better than last summer and and better than the holiday season. There are challenges. They are being addressed. I'm confident that the airline industry is going to get them addressed. And travelers are going to be able to really have the expectation. and, And that expectation is going to be met. Captain Casey Murray, president of the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much. For illustrator and kids book writer Ian Falconer, inspiration often comes from people around him. He based the character of Olivia the pig on his young niece, and readers became smitten, landing him and Olivia on the New York Times bestseller list. Now Ian Falconer's latest book, Two Dogs, is inspired by his other sister's kids. Perry is the one who'd throw mud at your windows. He's naughty and funny and uh, brash and, uh, and, oh, he is very, very cautious, careful, doesn't want to get in trouble. And they all both still that way. It's a story of a pair of two dachshunds named Perry and Augie at home one afternoon alone, entertaining themselves the way Falconer imagines two pups might when their humans are at work or at school. My co-host Elsa Chang talked with Falconer the other day, and they started talking about his real-life inspiration for Perry and Augie. You know, it's very simplified for children, but it's uh, but they both have the same personalities that they have in, in life. How did you land on this dog breed in the first place, Dachshunds? Why wiener dogs? Well, my, our family has always had them. Grandparents, great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, uncles. I love it. German, just like Scottish people always get Scotties. And things <laughs> like that. 
When you were growing up, did your dachshunds get into a lot of trouble when you guys would leave the house? Oh, yes, frequently. (laughs) Emptying out the garbage onto the floor, getting... I remember once the the two dogs, I got a ham off the counter and ate the entire ham, and they were so sick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm imagining you cleaning up after them during walks for days and days. You know, when I was flipping through this book, some of the drawings, they look... They look so realistic. Like um, there's this spread here of them uh, sort of running around the lawn, watering, watering in quotes, um, the flowers, playing by the pool. Did you start with photographs and sort of tweak the photographs and made them illustrations? Or how do they look so realistic? I made a whole model of the backyard oh. um, using artificial plants and the the fence you see running about around the back is actually sushi mats. Oh my god, really? Thought it would be fun to juxtapose the drawings with um, realistic stuff and try and get away with it. Yeah, it looks really cool. What do you want people to be left with as families gather to flip through the beautiful pages of this book? What thoughts do you want them to be having in their brains as they learn about Augie and Perry? I think just to enjoy them. There's no message in the book, except that they're friends in the end. They've done something together, and it's gotten them over their fighting. Not much more than that. Just meant to be fun. You know, (laughs) also this book, because we're returning to work these days, or a lot of people are, including myself, this book made me think that maybe I need to get a partner in crime for my dog, Mickey, because I do think he's going to be a lot lonelier these days um, as I'm gone. Well, they will. I've, yeah. I've read about that, that, that suddenly the, everybody's gone again. Uh, the parents are, the, the, and the kids are all gone again. They're out of the house. Yeah, exactly. But then I was thinking after reading your book and looking at all the funny illustrations of all these antics that Augie and Perry get into, I'm thinking, man, if I do get a buddy for Mickey while I go back to work, this book is warning me what could happen in my absence. (laughs) Don't worry, they're not that clever. Ian Falconer's new book is called Two Dogs. Thank you so much for being with us, Ian. Well, thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom 
how the world connects. This is 90.9 WBUR. We have a nice evening on the way. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies, about 60 for low. And then for tomorrow, sunny and dry, 83 degrees. Thursday, sunny again, should be in the mid-80s tops. 73 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A former White House aide told the House January 6th committee that former President Trump knew the crowd that day on Capitol Hill was armed. She spoke of outbursts by Trump that could be violent, for instance, when he got news that left him feeling betrayed. The president was extremely angry and had thrown his lunch against the wall. I'm Lisa Mullins, also coming up. Vice President Harris has a long history working on reproductive rights. Coming up, she responds to the Supreme Court's ruling that there is no constitutional right to abortion. We need to stand up and speak loudly about why this is something that we will fight against. Also, should the FDA authorize new COVID-19 vaccines to protect people against what could be another winter surge of the Omicron strain? These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up next. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol heard testimony from a key aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows today. In a surprise hearing called by the panel, Cassidy Hutchinson telling committee co-chair Liz Cheney the White House knew well in advance there could be armed supporters of then-President Donald Trump in Washington for a planned rally. You also told us about reports of violence and weapons that the Secret Service were receiving on the night of January 5th and throughout the day on January 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. Hutchinson also told the committee Trump did not seem to care that some in the crowd that marched on the Capitol had weapons and how a furious Trump later wanted to join marchers on Capitol Hill, at one point trying to wrest control of the steering wheel of the presidential limo when he was told he was being returned to the White House. In the wake of last week's Supreme Court decision, the Biden administration is working to ensure access to abortion pills and other forms of abortion care. But as NPR's Tamara Keith explains, there's one idea being proposed by some congressional Democrats the White House is not supporting. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are among those urging the Biden administration to offer up federal lands as a place where clinics could be set up to offer abortion services. Briefing on Air Force One, Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said it wouldn't work. We understand the proposal is well-intentioned, but here's the thing, it could actually put women and providers at risk. Uh, and, uh, and importantly, in states where abortion is now uh, illegal, women and providers who are not federal employees, as you look at the federal lands, could be potentially be prosecuted. 
She said the administration will take executive action to protect abortion, but those options are limited. Tamara Keith, NPR News, traveling with the president. Another person has died in the crash of an Amtrak train in Missouri, the death toll rising to four. And as Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, the number of confirmed injuries has tripled. An Amtrak train speeding from L.A. to Chicago slammed into a big dump truck Monday afternoon, quickly killing the driver and two people on the train. Train cars toppled off the track, sending 275 passengers and most of 12 crew members tumbling. Amtrak now says that about 150 people were rushed to hospitals, fanned out around rural north-central Missouri. The Missouri Highway Patrol today says a third crash victim has died. The train met the dump truck, where a remote, dusty gravel road crosses the tracks. The intersection is marked by a sign But no flashing lights, no bells, no cross arms protect traffic from oncoming trains. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris. Stocks lost ground today after weaker than expected consumer confidence numbers. The Dow was down 491 points. The Nasdaq fell 343 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city and Boston public schools are ready to roll up their sleeves to fix deficiencies in the district. Mayor Wu and the Education Commissioner Jeff Riley reached a deal last night to prevent the schools from being designated as underperforming. That classification would have allowed Riley to appoint an auditor to oversee an improvement plan. Today, Mayor Wu told members of the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education that the city never shied away from that proposal. The Boston Public Schools and our city were never pushing back on data oversight or partnership from the state. In fact, That provision for an independent data auditor had been in many, many drafts from nearly the beginning of the the discussions in this agreement. Under the agreement, the school department and the city will take immediate steps at fixing long-standing deficiencies in areas that include special education, English learner instruction, student safety, and transportation. CVS is temporarily limiting purchases of Plan B emergency contraceptive pills to three pills per customer. The Rhode Island-based pharmacy implemented a restriction after the nationwide surge in demand for the so-called morning-after pills. That followed Friday's Supreme Court ruling that overturns Roe v. Wade. The pill is meant to be taken shortly after having unprotected sex or after a birth control failure to prevent pregnancy. Rite Aid is also limiting purchases. Walgreens says it currently has no purchase limits on medication. And for the first time, researchers at Boston University have diagnosed chronic traumatic encephalopathy in a major league soccer player. The BUCTE Center says sporting Kansas City defender Scott Vermillion suffered from the degenerative brain disease. Vermillion died of an accidental drug overdose in December of 2020. The disease has been identified in more than 100 former NFL players. CTE has been linked to concussions or blows to the head. In the forecast, should be a nice evening ahead, a nice night tonight as well. Pretty dry, just some fair weather clouds around, down around 60. Tomorrow, sunshine, warmer temperatures should break into the 80s. And then Thursday, beautiful, lots of sunshine. Highs about 85 degrees could reach the mid-90s on Friday. It's 5.06. WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. 
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The January 6th committee developed more of its case today with explosive testimony. According to a surprise witness, President Trump and some of his closest allies were willing to risk everything to overturn the 2020 election, inciting violence, breaking the law, hurting others. That witness was Cassidy Hutchinson, a top aide to former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. She testified that former White House counsel Pat Cipollone was among those sounding the alarm to her boss. Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. I'm going down there. It was part of a pattern that came to a head with the attack on the Capitol. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales was covering today's testimony. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Ari. So we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson that there were a lot of signs that January 6th could turn violent. We've seen where that all came to a head. Lay out what the early clues were. Right. The committee shared police radio traffic from the day of the attack, documenting reports of individuals at the rally carrying weapons, such as assault-style rifles. Underneath the hoodie jacket, the complainants both saw a stock of AR-15. He's going to be with a group of individuals, about 589, skinny white males, brown cowboy boots. They had Glock-style pistols in their waistband. And this followed what Hutchinson told the committee was repeated warnings to the Trump White House that violence was expected. For example, she testified that Trump knew that members of the crowd had weapons, but that he didn't care. He said that they were not there to hurt him and they could march to the Capitol after the rally. We also have been wondering how much people knew in real time at the White House about the violence that was happening. And the testimony today illustrated just how aware senior administration officials were. Tell us what we learned. Right. Yes. Hutchinson said that Cipollone in particular warned about this as there were discussions among allies about Trump even going to the House chamber on January 6th or joining the rioters in their march to the Capitol. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, Please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And this preceded a physical altercation involving the then president that Hutchinson heard about where he attempted to take control of the presidential vehicle to get to the Capitol, but was restrained by his security detail. And then Trump lunged at this agent and towards an aide in the vehicle. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. It's just remarkable to think about the president lunging at the man driving his limousine. Uh, And we also heard this was not the first time that Trump exploded on his team like this in the run up to the attack. Yes, Hutchinson also said she came across a scene where Trump threw dishes on a a wall, leaving ketchup dripping down after learning that his attorney general, Bill Barr, said there was no widespread fraud in the 2020 election. But we should note Trump has denied these claims on a social media platform he controls, despite documentation in some of these cases. Now, Hutchinson sort of spelled out different groups or teams within the White House in the run up to January 6th. Describe what she laid out here. 
Yes, Hutchinson said Rudy Giuliani told her days ahead of the attack that January 6th would be, quote, great and Trump would look, quote, powerful. And she was worried and she explained that he was part of one of these three groups. One group tried to intervene and get the then president to take action to stop the attack. And that included Cipollone, another quiet group that did not speak out, comprised another. And a third that would include Giuliani was blaming others. And then another theme she touched on again and again was the inaction by her boss, Mark Meadows, and then in turn Trump, who received warnings and did nothing to respond to the violence, even as it was unleashed on the Capitol. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thanks a lot. Thank you much. The Supreme Court decision eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion has shaken the Democratic Party. Activists are looking for answers on how the White House plans to fight back. And NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid sat down with Vice President Kamala Harris today to talk about all of this. Asma Khalid joins us now. Hey, Asma. Hi there, Juana. So activists are calling on the White House to use the full force of the executive branch to protect and defend abortion access. Did you ask the vice president about that? I did, Juana. In fact, that is exactly where I started our conversation. One of the criticisms that we have been hearing from folks on the left within the Democratic Party is, you know, the White House is telling people to vote more. But why are we not seeing you out at abortion clinics meeting with women? Well, I have been at this very table. Um, So I think, but let's, let's, let's talk about it, if we can just back up for a moment, in terms of what this means. And I want to make that point to make an equally important point, which is that we have to stand together in this fight, right? Those of us who understand what's at stake. Uh, this is the first time in the history of our country that the United States Supreme Court has taken a constitutional right that was recognized, taken from women the ability to make decisions about their own body, has in effect rendered an opinion that suggests that a woman will have to have um, and carry to term a pregnancy that she doesn't want. Mm -hmm. It's an extraordinary thing what has just happened in terms of the significance to the essential principles, the essential to our nation and its founding of freedom, of liberty, the right to privacy. It is profound in terms of where it takes us back. You know, we have a a 23-year-old daughter who is going to know fewer rights than my 80 something year old mother-in-law. That's profound. And, you know, Juana, she, like President Biden, say what really needs to happen is that Congress needs to put abortion protection into law. But on Capitol Hill, the reality is that Democrats don't have the votes now. Did you press her on how that can happen? Uh, I did. And, you know, we went back and forth because I did want to get clarity on how exactly this could happen. She talked about a bill that would have done that, that failed to pass the 60-vote threshold in the Senate earlier this year. We right now have a Senate where there are, it's an even split of Democrats and Republicans, 50-50. I sat in the chair presiding over the United States Senate when the vote came up for the Women's Protection Act. And the votes were not there. Not one Republican voted. Not one Republican voted in favor 
of passing legislation to protect a woman's right to make decisions over her own body. And so that's where the votes are right now. We have a midterm coming up in 100, and I think it's as of today, 133 days, a midterm which could decide the balance of the United States Congress, both on the Senate side and on the House side. And knowing that we now, the court has acted in the way that it did, we now know the, 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 the place where the protection is going to happen to reinstate those protections has to be through law and that's through Congress. So part of what we need to do is we cannot underestimate the significance of the upcoming elections and the need for all people who care about this issue to understand that we have to have a pro-choice Congress so to pass sure this law. I can law. understand what you're saying. Though. So you're saying that there wasn't Republican support for this legislation. There was not. Why there not, was literally not. But we, why not push for overturning the filibuster in that case, if knowing that you're not going to have the Republican You votes. still need the votes to overturn the filibuster, and the votes and you, don't exist. Do you individually support that idea, though? Let's say you don't have the votes. Why are we talking about hypotheticals? The votes don't exist. What I support, let me tell you what I support. Mm -hmm. I support electing a pro-choice Congress to get the votes, to pass the legislation, to put into law a protection for women of America to make decisions about their own body without government interference. And so I'm not going to engage in, in, in a, a, a spending time talking about something that actually is not going to happen right now because the votes just don't exist. But what I do know can happen right now what I do know can happen right now is that over the course of the next 130-something days, we, through the electoral process, have the opportunity, the possibility, dare I say, the imperative of looking at these races. Look at the Senate race in Georgia. Look at the Senate race in North Carolina. Look at the Senate race that's happening soon in, in Colorado. And, and understand the levers that we have to move. And, and what I will say, I kept pressing her on this issue of the filibuster, which, you know, of course, is a 60-vote threshold needed for most legislation. I do want to make sure that I understand clearly, though, what it means to say Roe is on the ballot this November, because if, if it's not a practical thing to talk about eliminating, you know, blowing up the filibuster right now, then is it that you need Well, we just don't have that. But it's not, it's a, it's not that it's... Not listen. That is a legitimate conversation, okay, about the filibuster. So that's that's not what I mean to suggest. Okay. What I what I am saying, however, is that given the current composition of the United States Senate, it's not going to happen. Asma, you've covered her for some time now. What struck you from this interview? My takeaway, Juana, is that even if Democrats want to change the current filibuster rules to make abortion legal through Congress, they need more Democrats to do that. And so that is why they are putting all their efforts into the midterms. That's NPR's Asma Khalid. You can hear more of her interview with the vice president on the NPR Politics Podcast. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks took a dive on Wall Street. The Dow fell more than 1.5% or 490 points to close at 30,947. S&P dropped 2% to settle at 3822 and the Nasdaq fell 3% to finish the day at 11,182. More business coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, diagnosing and repairing building envelope and water intrusion problems, consultation scheduling at brsboston.com, and Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Neil Diamond musical A Beautiful Noise is canceling its Boston performances through Sunday. A spokesman for the Emerson Colonial Theatre says several members of the company have tested positive for COVID-19. The theatre plans to resume performances a week from today. That's Tuesday, July 5th. Those who bought tickets from the theatre will be contacted directly about scheduling options. It is your last chance to triple your support to WBUR during our June fundraiser. Your $10 a month gift becomes $30 a month for an entire year, so please Please give right now at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Zoo New England, experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. Tonight, a few clouds around, about 60 for a low. Tomorrow, sunny and dry, 84 degrees. Thursday, sunny again in the mid-80s tops, then rising to the mid-90s on Friday with more sunshine. Still 73 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Federal authorities are investigating the deaths of more than 50 people on the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas. Most of the bodies were found in the oven-like trailer of an abandoned 18-wheeler truck. At least 16 people, including teenagers, were taken to local hospitals. It is the worst known human smuggling catastrophe in modern U.S. history. NPR's John Burnett is covering this story from San Antonio. Hi, John. Hey, Ari. What more can you tell us about who these people were? Mm, Texas has been suffering through this record heat wave this month, and it's horrible to think of 60 people, at least, trapped inside of a metal box under the scorching sun, 100 degrees plus without water or cooling. We know that 22 of the dead are Mexican nationals, seven are Guatemalans, two are Hondurans, and the rest are still being identified. Police said they died from um, heat stroke and suffocation. It was a nearby worker who discovered the truck abandoned on a remote road in the southwest side of San Antonio. It's located between railroad tracks and a cluster of auto junkyards. But it's less than a mile from Interstate 35, which is the nation's biggest commercial highway leading up from the Mexican border. I mean, you just think of the tremendous number of those big rigs. Uh, The Border Patrol can't search every one of them. 
The Homeland Security Department has not had anything to say about its investigation yet. But here's Jerry Robinette. He's former head of Homeland Security Investigations in San Antonio. Highway 35 is a major corridor. When you look at the, the volume of commercial truck traffic that comes out of Laredo, I mean, it is literally a needle in a haystack. It's, it's a miracle that they come across what they do come across. Federal investigators have three people in custody who may be tied to the smuggling case. Although this may be worse than any such previous case that we know of, we have seen incidents like this before where people die in the process of trying to cross into the U.S. Tell us about the precedents here. Right. Um, there's a lot of them. Um, in July 2017, authorities discovered a tractor trader parked at a Walmart again in San Antonio. Ten died in that incident, and the driver was sentenced to life in prison. And in May 20, uh, 2003, 19 migrants perished inside of a tractor trailer near Victoria, Texas, which was between the border and Houston. Anything more that is known about the truck that was used to smuggle these people? Well, the cab was a bright red Volvo, and it seems that the Coyote, the human smuggler, in order to legitimize the truck, cloned the registration numbers from for the Texas Department of Transportation. Here's Felipe Betancourt, one of the owners of the trucking company in the Rio Grande Valley that hauls fruits and vegetables. He said one of their trucks had its vehicle numbers ripped off and put on the smuggling truck. Hmm. I mean, you you can't believe it. I mean, it's it's really bad, you know, what's going on. And especially, I mean, all those people, I mean, you, we're, we're still in shock right now. What's been the official response from Mexico and the U.S.? Well, Mexico, for one, is upset. Here's President Andres Manuel López Obrador at a press conference this morning. Estos hechos lamentables que desde luego tienen que ver con... The Mexican president said that the horrific incident was a product of the poverty and desperation of our Central American brothers and of Mexicans. He went on to say it happens because there's trafficking of people and a lack of control at the border and in the U.S. interior. Uh, and uh, President Biden has come under fire from Republicans for not doing more to stop the influx at the border. Biden said today this incident underscores the need to go after the multi-billion dollar criminal smuggling industry that preys on migrants and leads to many innocent deaths. That's NPR's John Burnett in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you. Sure, Ari. President Biden and leaders from other NATO countries are meeting this week in Madrid, Spain. They're gathering at a moment when Russia is making significant gains on the battlefield in eastern Ukraine. But while Russia is scoring victories, Moscow is paying a huge price for this conflict that may be unsustainable. NPR's Brian Mann reports. For a few weeks now, the news out of Ukraine has been especially grim. Savage rocket strikes against civilian targets, Ukraine's defense forces pulling back in the Luhansk region. Military analysts and Russia experts generally agree Moscow stopped making the massive blunders that defined the opening weeks of the invasion. Bill Raggio is with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. They have gotten back to following their military doctrine of massing their forces, using artillery, and basically grinding through the fight. But there's also a growing consensus. Russia's gains and its goals keep shrinking. Meanwhile, the costs on the battlefield and in Russia's global standing keep escalating. Their prestige has definitely taken a hit by not being able to deal a decisive blow to Ukraine. The one thing we've learned is that Russia is not a conventional military threat. 
to NATO in general. One thing that often happens in war, experts say, is armies score victories that look important, but they suffer losses along the way that are just too large to sustain. Mason Clark thinks that's happening now in the Donbass fight. They're just slowly losing combat power over time, and the morale of Russian forces is absolutely plummeting. Clark heads a team focused on Russia, the Institute for the Study of War. In exchange for modest territorial gains, he says, Russia is sacrificing many of its best soldiers and officers. Long term, this is going to be a generational event for the Russian military of, frankly, so much expertise is being lost for them among these high officer casualties. It's going to make it very difficult not just to do short-term corrections, but rebuild in the long term. Moscow has shaken up its leadership of the war, but Ben Hodges, a retired lieutenant general who commanded U.S. forces in Europe, says it's clear core problems haven't been solved. The depth of the corruption inside the Ministry of Defense and the military was much greater than I had expected. Hodges, who's now an analyst at a think tank called SIPA, predicts Ukraine's military will continue to grow in strength while Russia falters. The logistics, their manpower problems, is so rotten on the inside that I don't believe it's uh, sustainable and that at some point it's going to crack. Most analysts think that process will take time. A slow, bloody war of attrition will last months and Ukraine will continue to pay a terrible price for its resistance. But there's also a growing conviction invading Ukraine will have consequences well beyond the battlefield. This is, I think, fairly devastating for the Russians. Jeffrey Edmonds is a former director for Russia on the National Security Council, now an analyst at the think tank called CNA. He thinks the growing brain drain and long-term sanctions will cripple Russia. He has really set them back decades. There are signs Western leaders are confident they have Russia cornered. This week, NATO allies will promise even more military aid to Ukraine, hoping to inflict maximum damage on Russia's army. But most analysts agree Russia will remain a major world player, a nuclear power, an important ally of China, rich in natural resources. Tracy German, a Russia expert at King's College London, worries there's not yet any plan for dealing with Russia in the future. I've seen nothing to suggest that that's really being thought about. And I think that's a critical question, isn't it, moving forwards, how we engage. Analysts say a deeply wounded and isolated Russia could be even more unstable, more unpredictable, and more dangerous. Brian Mann, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, today's surprise hearing of the January 6th committee that produced some explosive testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, a young aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. The revelations coming up. 7.07 game time in Toronto tonight as the Red Sox and Blue Jays meet up for game two of their three-game series. It'll be Mike Walker against Toronto's Russ Stripling. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 22 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com.
Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. And Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. You know that bold experiment in fundraising that we've been telling you about? Well, it ends on Thursday. We are keeping WBUR uninterrupted. Now is the moment when we need your help to meet our goal. Take a minute right now. Make a monthly gift at WBUR.org or add a dollar or two to your existing monthly gift. A little makes a big difference. Just go to WBUR.org. And thanks. And a quick note about the request you just heard from Tiziana. This is your last chance to triple your contribution during our June Fund Drive. Get in on the triple match at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In new public testimony today, a top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told the Select Committee looking into the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last year that then-President Donald Trump wanted to join the crowd and became irate when he was told he wouldn't be taken to the Capitol and tried to grab the steering wheel. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. The committee says Cassidy Hutchinson was in a position to know a great deal about what was going on in the White House that day and in the days prior. Hutchinson relayed a conversation she had with former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about the planning around January 6th. When hearing Rudy's take on January 6th and then Mark's response, that evening was the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen. Hutchinson testified that Giuliani told her that January 6th was going to be a great day because they were going to the Capitol. She added that when asked about that, Meadows said it may get real, real bad. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Pro-Russia hackers have claimed responsibility for days of disruption in Lithuania's public services. As NPR's Joanna Kakissis tells us, they say it's retaliation for Lithuania's block on goods to a Russian enclave. In this video posted to social media, the Russian hacker group Killnet said attacks would continue unless Lithuania allowed the transit of goods to Kaliningrad. The Russian territory is surrounded by Lithuania and Poland. Lithuanian officials say they're following European Union sanctions on Russia by blocking the goods. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street as consumer confidence slipped for the second month in a row. The Dow was down 1.5%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are reacting to today's explosive testimony by former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. Congressman Jim McGovern has tweeted that Trump sent a mob to the U.S. Capitol to kill members of Congress. He also says the allegation that Trump assaulted a Secret Service agent who refused to redirect the presidential motorcade toward the Capitol on July 6th shows why Trump, quote, must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. People in Massachusetts are generally happy with the state's strict gun laws, but there is broad support across the political spectrum for tighter gun laws at the federal level. That's according to a new survey of 1,000 residents. It was led by UMass Amherst and WCVB. UMass political scientist Ray LaRaja says a majority of respondents also want the state to maintain its process for acquiring a concealed carry permit. 
it'll be a challenging legislative issue, but Massachusetts voters seem to support making it as hard as it is right now. Nearly two-thirds of people surveyed in the polls say they would back a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Massachusetts House is expected to take up a bill this week that would make changes to health insurance practices known as step therapy. That's when insurers deny coverage for prescribed treatment until a less expensive alternative has been tried first. The state Senate approved a similar bill at the end of the last session, but it was not acted on in the House. And unionized workers at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts have ratified their first collective bargaining agreement with the museum. The deal includes employee pay increases. Workers said compensation and the region's rising cost of living were major concerns driving the unionization effort. In a statement, museum leaders say the deal is fair and will make MFA a stronger organization. It's 534. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. Should be a clear night tonight, about 60 for low. Tomorrow and Thursday, pretty beautiful. Lots of sunshine, a good deal of warmer. Tomorrow should reach 84. Thursday could make it to 86 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. TotalWine.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today's surprise hearing of the January 6th committee came with some explosive testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. She was a top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She vividly described President Trump's efforts to join rioters at the Capitol, even lunging at the driver of his limousine. She testified that Trump knew the mob was armed but said they weren't there to attack him. I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it. Let's discuss what these revelations could mean for the broader investigation with Neil Katyal. He's a Georgetown law professor who held senior roles in the Obama Justice Department. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. Good to be here. Big picture, do you think today's testimony changed the overall course of this investigation? I think it did. I had my doubts, but this was really worthy of a surprise hearing. You know, Ari, I've heard hundreds of witnesses in my time. I've never heard a witness like Cassidy Hutchinson. She was not just credible and balanced, but she's also a Trump person. I mean, she's a Trump loyalist and before that worked for Representative Steve Scalise, you know. And so to hear her say what you just mentioned a moment ago, that Trump knew these people had guns. He said, don't worry, take the metal detectors away. Those people aren't here to hurt me and all the other stuff she detailed today, it's incredibly damning. It makes the federal case, not just against Donald Trump, but Mark Meadows and others, very, very strong. Let's talk more about that federal case, because I spoke yesterday with former acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, who testified at last Thursday's hearing, and I asked him if the Justice Department should be pursuing a criminal case against Trump. Here's what he told me. 
you would need a very, very solid case before proceeding. I think criminal intent is required. And it's a difficult thing in normal circumstances. It would be a particularly difficult thing with this personality, this president, and these circumstances. That was before today's testimony. Neil Katyal, do you think what we heard today provides evidence of criminal intent? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this wasn't just willful blindness, which is what the last hearings have been about, which is enough, of course, to satisfy the criminal intent standard that Donald Trump intentionally looked the other way or believed kind of cockamamie things uh, and didn't talk to, you know, experts and things like that. Today, he, you know, the evidence showed he was warned about the violence. His own White House counsel said, don't go to the Capitol. You'll be charged with multiple crimes. He also said that Trump said, quote, Pence deserves it. When Trump was asked about these hang Mike Pence moves being done at the Capitol by the insurrectionists. And we also learned, you know, other things today, like, you know, that there was potential witness tampering. Yeah. Um, on, on the witness tampering, Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee, Republican of Wyoming, uh, quoted one message to a witness that said he, Trump, he wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal. Do you think there will be consequences for that sort of thing? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, the witness tampering is one of the most serious allegations because our system depends on truthful testimony in, you know, courts and in Congress and the like. And if Trump is actually behind some sort of witness tampering in any way, shape or form, that's an easy conspiracy. And so when you ask Mr. Donahoe, you were talking about other things. There's just new revelations today, Ori, that make the case against Trump even stronger than I thought it was. And, you know, I wrote a piece in The New York Times last week, which out lined two different crimes, both conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of an official proceeding, both of which a federal judge has already said that it's more likely than not that Trump committed those federal felonies. One, now there's new stuff. Yeah, one more big revelation at the end of this hearing is that uh, Hutchinson said both her former boss, then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani both sought pardons the day after the attack on the Capitol. Just in our last 30 seconds or so, what could that testimony pretend for some of the president's former president? closest allies. It's very dangerous. It looks like not just Donald Trump knew what was going on, but Mark Meadows knew too. And that's what we in the law call a seditious conspiracy. And so that's the legal significance and the kind of moral significance. Compare what Meadows did, Ori, to what Donahue, the person you were just asking about, and the other Trump DOJ officials testified they did last week. They, you know, threatened to resign. They organized an opposition and the like. What did Mark Meadows do? Nothing. In oh. fact, he told Trump, let's go to the Capitol after Trump gave a speech on January 6th. Georgetown University law professor Neil Katyal, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. A key federal advisory committee today recommended that the Food and Drug Administration tell COVID-19 vaccine makers to reformulate boosters so they target the Omicron variant. The recommendation is aimed at bolstering protection before a possible winter surge of illness. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey there. So the FDA committee says we need new versions of the vaccines designed specifically to fend off Omicron. What are they saying exactly? You know, this could be one of the most important decisions the federal government makes to try to keep the country safe as the virus continues to spread rapidly and evolve. Right now, it may feel like the pandemic is kind of fading into the background, but that could be fleeting. The protection people have from getting vaccinated or infected continues to wear off, and public health experts are especially worried about another big surge in the coming winter. Here's how Dr. Peter Marks at the FDA set the stage for the day-long meeting today. That combination of waning immunity combined with the potential emergence of novel variants 
during a time this winter when we will move inside as a population increases our risk of a major COVID-19 outbreak. So in the end, the committee voted 19 to 2 that the country should deploy a new generation of vaccines programmed to target Omicron for another round of boosters in the fall. But, you know, it wasn't an easy call. Well, just what made it so tricky? Well, you know, there are just so many unknowns. This virus evolves so fast and is so unpredictable that it's really tough to pick the best strategy for a booster campaign, you know, a half a year away. Who knows how much immunity people will have left by then, and who knows what variant will be spreading by then. Here's how Dr. Arnold Monto at the University of Michigan put it. He chairs the committee. We're being asked to more or less to have a crystal ball today. And to make things even harder, there just isn't a whole lot of data yet about how much better new vaccines targeting Omicron would really be. You know, studies from Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech indicate that their new Omicron vaccines could provide stronger protection than the original vaccines, but it may not be all that much stronger. And those vaccines, they target the original strain of Omicron, which has already been replaced by new subvariants that are even better at sneaking around the immune system. In fact, the CDC released new data today that estimates those new subvariants variants called BA4 and BA5 are now dominant in the U.S., so Pfizer surprised the committee with new data about another new vaccine tailored to fend off BA4 and BA5 that looks promising, but that was based on experiments involving mice, so it's even more preliminary. So advisors voted to go with some sort of new Omicron vaccine. Did they say which one? You know, they didn't specify, but, you know, it was clear that most of the advisors felt that the next booster should target these new subvariants, BA4 and BA5. Here's how Dr. Bruce Gellin at the Rockefeller Foundation put it. In the spirit of the Stanley Cup, where the puck is going rather than where it's been, so I lean to the BA4-5. But many of the experts endorsed targeting both some version of Omicron and the original virus to sort of hedge our bets. But it will now be up to the FDA to decide exactly what to do. The agency will probably make its pick by midsummer, and the companies say they could deliver millions of doses of new Omicron vaccines by, you know, October or November. All right, NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. Sure thing. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A proverbial cloud had been hanging over a pivotal NATO summit this week in Madrid, and at the last moment, it lifted. Turkey has dropped its objections to Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. This comes as NATO plans to announce major troop deployments to Eastern Europe to deter Russia. NPR's Frank Langfitt is in Madrid. Hi, Frank. Hey, Ari. Tell us about the significance of this deal. Yeah, a lot of it's the timing. You know, this is the biggest NATO summit in at least a couple of decades, and there's big political symbolism. I mean, this is basically a, a rebuke to President Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. You know, he said one of the reasons he invaded Ukraine, Ari, of course, was to stop it from joining NATO. And at a news conference this evening, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, had this to say. One of the most important messages from President Putin there was that he was against any further NATO enlargement. He wanted less NATO. Now President Putin is getting more NATO on his borders. So what he gets is the opposite of what he actually demanded. Frank, why did Turkey object to the expansion and why did Turkey change its mind? 
Yeah, the turkey said it had nothing to do with NATO, but it had been complaining for some time about, uh, basically from its perspective, Sweden and Finland weren't doing enough to combat people that Turkey views as terrorists. Now, this relates to supporters of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is recognized as a terrorist organization by Turkey, the U.S., and the EU, and it's been very active in southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and Syria. Now, in a memorandum today, the Nordic countries agreed to prevent activities by the party, which is also known as the PKK, and entered it and entered in an extradition agreement with Turkey to turn over potential suspects that it says has links to the PKK, that Turkey thinks has links to the PKK, uh, and who they say have been finding refuge in Sweden and Finland. And Stoltenberg was very interesting. He went out of his way to acknowledge Turkey's concerns. No ally has suffered more brutal terrorist attacks than Turkey, including from the terrorist group PKK. And that was all that was required for Turkey to drop its objections? Well, officially, Ari, yes. But there were a lot of, well, there's a lot of smiles in, in the press conference today. People, people kind of looking around because people think there's something else going on here. Many people have thought that Turkey was really holding this up, uh, Sweden and Finland, in hopes of getting the U.S. to agree to sell it fighter jets, which Turkey has wanted for a long time. Now, President Biden did talk to Turkey's President Erdogan today, but senior administration officials said uh, that the U.S. made no direct offer to get Turkey on board. Biden is expected to meet Erdogan tomorrow here at the summit. This deal gives the impression of a unified, growing NATO alliance. Is that image entirely accurate? No, it's a lot more complicated. Remember, this is 30 uh, allies. Uh, it's hard for them always to agree, and each you know, each country in Europe has a slightly different point of view. There are disagreements and have been for a number of months over the types of weapons NATO should be sending to Ukraine. Concerns, uh, some allies think that, you know, if you send them very heavy weapons, long-range missiles, it could escalate and widen the war. Another question is whether to back Ukraine indefinitely or push for a negotiated settlement in which Ukraine gives up land to Russia, which, of course, Ukraine absolutely does not want. And this is one reason I think, Ari, that a deal like this coming right now is very helpful to the alliance because it does present this image of strength and unity. That is NPR's Frank Langfitt covering the NATO summit in Madrid. Thanks, Frank. Hey, great to talk, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, this summer you can travel in Germany on public transportation for less than $10 a month. It's part of a government package to tackle the soaring cost of living by using more public transportation. That story is coming up. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight, about 60 for a low. Tomorrow and Thursday should be lovely. Lots of sunshine, a good deal warmer. Tomorrow should reach 83. Thursday could make it to 85 degrees. This is WBUR in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. My name's Simon Rios. I'm a reporter at WBUR. Apparently, around the 19th century and going forward into the 20th century, this new sort of deed restriction started to appear. 
somebody would sell a piece of land and include in the deed a restriction that only certain people could live there. One of the racist deed restrictions that we uncovered was in Wilmington. The deed prohibited anybody from Ireland from inhabiting this plot of land. So I was able to find the house and found the couple. They were home. And Mary Tazone Kaiser was blown away. It's disgusting. I mean, to like discriminate against anybody so they can't own land for whatever reason or live in a, live in a house for whatever reason. This kind of reporting matters to our listeners. It matters to our station. Go to WBUR.org and sign up to become a monthly contributor. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This summer, you can travel around Germany on nearly every form of public transportation for less than $10 a month. The discount is part of a government package that aims to tackle the soaring cost of living and persuade Germans to save gas by using more public transportation. NPR's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz hit the rails to find out if it's working. Berlin's Alexanderplatz station is filled with passengers on this late spring day, many of them holding the so-called 9-euro ticket. To be honest, I found out about this ticket like two days ago. Yeah, and uh, it seems to be very cheap uh, comparing to other prices. Mateusz Nowak is visiting from Breslau, Poland, where he says the price of everything is skyrocketing thanks to an influx of refugees. It's practically impossible to find apartment because there are so many people from Ukraine. Uh, they are looking for a place to stay with whole families. So the gas prices are very high. You can see the impact almost everywhere. Novak is on his way to Hamburg for work. He drives a bus for rock bands on their European tours. He squats next to his backpack, his tattooed hands holding an itinerary of where his nine euro pass will take him today. It said that I will be there at 3.38 today and I will start at 11.16 here. Okay, so you're looking at four and a half hours, right? Yeah, yeah. On a train where you spend a little more money, a lot more money actually, it would probably be two hours. Is that extra time worth it? Yes. I don't have to be there so quick. So, yeah, th- this option is the best for me. It's the best option for many people, says Stefan Gelpar, a lawmaker from Germany's Green Party. So far, 16 million nine-euro tickets have been sold in the first two weeks. If you add annual subscription holders, a third of Germany has already taken up this offer. Germany's government, which includes the Green Party, has promised to compensate public transportation companies 2.5 billion euros for this scheme. He says the idea for the ticket came when some in the government suggested subsidies to trim the price of gas for German drivers. We insisted subsidies shouldn't just benefit drivers, but also people who use public bus and rail. And we're interested in what impact this cheaper ticket will have on passenger behavior. Passenger behavior on a regional train from Berlin to Magdeburg a couple hours away depends on whether you've managed to nab a seat or not. After a mad scramble on the platform, many passengers on this train are left standing. So we've been on the train for 10 minutes, and nearly every available space in this train is occupied, including the stairway where people are sitting and people are standing in the doorway area as well. And the ride just started. 
Scenes like this are why rail expert and economist Christian Butker thinks the nine-euro ticket is a bad idea. He points to stories this month where some trains have been so crowded that police asked hundreds of passengers to get off the train and get on the next one. It's very hard and I mean it's very unpleasant because no one wants to leave a train if you know. Uh, the next train will be there in an hour uh, possibly and it will be as crowded as this one. Why should you leave that? Butger says German trains are already crowded and this new ticket will just make it worse, making for unpleasant experiences for people who may likely be turned off from trains for good. Back at Alexanderplatz station, train passenger Katja von Hagen says after the nine euro pass expires at the end of August, she expects many people will return to their cars. Public transportation is just too expensive, she says, just like everything else these days. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. People in Flint, Michigan, are still seeking justice from a crisis that rocked the city in 2014. That's when the water supply became toxic with lead and bacteria poisoning. Some died, and many are still suffering the repercussions. And today, the state Supreme Court handed down a decision that has weakened a case against the officials who are allegedly responsible. Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta joins me now to discuss. Hey, Rick. Hi. So we'll get to the developments in a bit, but if you could first, Rick, remind us about the details of this case. Sure. So back in 2020, the, the city's water supply was put under the control of an emergency manager. And that manager made the decision to disconnect from the old water system. It was one that was shared with the city of Detroit and instead started drawing from the Flint River. It was an effort to save money. What they didn't realize was that that switch caused lead in the old water pipes to leach into the water system. And that caused a lot of water contamination. People actually died from bacterial outbreaks. Um, other people had significant lead poisoning. Eventually, criminal charges were filed by the state attorney general against the governor and those who worked under him. Okay, was that an unusual course of action, filing charges against the governor and his staff? This is a very unusual course of prosecution. Governors and their staff are not generally charged with crimes related to their official duties. Governmental immunity shields public officials from decisions made in the course of their jobs, including bad decisions. So now, Rick, take us to today. What does this ruling mean for this case? Um, Sure. Um, It's a procedural update, but it is significant because it can actually break the case. The Supreme Court said today that charges against three former top state officials had not been issued correctly. Here's an attorney, John Birch, and he represents one of those officials who ran the State Department of Health and Human Services. But it's time for the nonsense to end. The attorney general has wasted millions upon millions of taxpayers' dollars and abused the public trust. Basically, the Supreme Court chastised the attorney general for allowing a one-judge grand jury to indict these officials. This is complicated and unusual. The process the attorney general used would have combined the judge and the prosecutor into one role. And the Michigan Supreme Court wrote a blistering opinion saying you need both of these roles. The chief justice called it, quote, a star chamber, you know, Mm. like from medieval times. Mm. So does that mean that these defendants, are they in the clear now? 
Well, not necessarily. The state solicitor general, the lawyer who's in charge of the state's case, says her office will refile the charges to comply with the Supreme Court opinion, uh, which will also mean that the prosecutor will have to tip her hand and show at least some of the evidence and some of the state's case. In the few seconds we have left, Rick, what does this mean for former Governor Rick Snyder? Sure. To be clear, today's decision did not mention the former governor, Rick Snyder. However, as a result of the logic laid out in the decision, his attorney says they're going to ask for the trial court to dismiss at least some of the charges of misconduct in office. It's a separate but related case. So the attorney general is in a tough corner. To name just one issue, there's a statute of limitations on these charges. That is Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta. Rick, thanks for your reporting. Oh, thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast. Distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is 90.9 WBUR. We should have clear skies tonight. Light winds, lows about 62. Wednesday, bright sunshine inching to about 84 degrees, a few degrees above that on Thursday. And then on Friday, sunny and hot, breaking into the 90s. It's your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June fundraiser. Your $50 a month gift becomes $150 a month for an entire year. So please give right now at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury. 89.1 WBUA-Brewster. Streaming at WBUR.org. And when you ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A former White House aide testifies today there were legal concerns inside the Trump White House before the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In the days leading up to the 6th, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Today is Tuesday, June 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, abortion remains illegal in many states after the Supreme Court's decision that overturns Roe v. Wade. But some clinics are operating again after they won at least a temporary victory in state court. 
We'll look at the likely ramifications of gun law changes coming from Congress and the Supreme Court. We'll speak with a passenger who was on board the Amtrak train that derailed on Monday in northeast Missouri. And this evening on Marketplace, we talk about the issue of inclusivity of people of different sizes in the world of fashion. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The January 6th committee heard dramatic testimony today from a former White House aide. As NPR's Lexi Shapital reports, Cassidy Hutchinson provided a first-hand account of what was happening in the West Wing leading up to the attack on the Capitol. Cassidy Hutchinson was a top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She told the panel then-President Trump was set on marching to the Capitol with the rioters on January 6th, but that his advisors worked behind the scenes to prevent it. Hutchinson testified that White House counsel Pat Cipollone warned a move like that could have serious legal consequences. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. Still, Hutchinson said, the president became irate when he learned the motorcade was headed back to the White House and tried to grab the steering wheel of his vehicle. Lexi Shapital, NPR News, the Capitol. Vice President Kamala Harris is calling out Republican lawmakers and the Supreme Court in the wake of a decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, the ruling that legalized abortion across the U.S., with roughly half of all U.S. states now expected to enact laws severely restricting a woman's right to abortion. Harris says it will be up to Congress to take action. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Turkey dropped its objections. In last-minute breakthrough, Turkey says it will support Finland and Sweden joining NATO. We hear more from NPR's Frank Langford on that story. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Turkey dropped its objections after the two nations said they would enter into an agreement to extradite people in Finland and Sweden that Turkey views as terror suspects. Stoltenberg said adding members to NATO is a rebuke to Russian President Vladimir Putin, who cited NATO enlargement as a reason for invading Ukraine. One of the most important messages from President Putin there was that he was against any further NATO enlargement. He wanted less NATO. Now President Putin is getting more NATO on his borders. President Biden spoke with his Turkish counterpart before the agreement, but the White House denied it offered anything in return for Turkey's support. Frank Langford, NPR News. Madrid. Consumers are less confident heading into the summer with the research group, the Conference Board, saying Americans are more pessimistic about the future than they've been in more than a year. The board saying its consumer confidence index fell nearly five points this month. That was the second straight monthly decline. The group's expectations index, which projects economic conditions six months down the road, also tumbled. Stocks lost ground today after weaker than expected consumer confidence numbers and continue to try to determine, as investors continue to try to determine how many more interest rate hikes could be forthcoming from the Fed. The Dow dropped 491 points today. The Nasdaq was down 343 points. The S&P 500 closed down 78 points today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city and its school system are ready to remedy problems within the district. The city and state board of elementary and secondary education reached a last-minute deal that prevented Boston public schools from being labeled as underperforming. Speaking today, board member Michael Moriarty said he thinks that was the wrong move and that Massachusetts should have placed the district under state receivership. Improving a huge organization like the Boston Public Schools is like turning around a giant ship. It takes a lot of time and effort. 
Instead of starting the work immediately after a quick negotiation, a month was lost, and that's too much time. Under the agreement, the city will get $10 million in assistance and the state will hire an independent auditor. Just days before the deadline for thousands of state law enforcement officers to be recertified, a judge has ruled two questions by the Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission are out of bounds. The first question involves whether an officer has posted anything on social media in the past five years that could be perceived as biased. The second asked whether an officer ever belonged to an organization that unlawfully discriminated against groups based on actual or perceived bias. The court ruled the questions were too broad and vague and that any previous responses to those questions should be ignored. Massachusetts House could vote as early as tomorrow on a bill that protects health care providers and their patients from legal action initiated by other states. The bill declares that access to reproductive and gender-affirming care are rights secured by the Constitution or laws of Massachusetts. It would bar police from providing information or assistance to private citizens, out-of-state or federal agencies looking to take action against people for services that are provided legally in Massachusetts. It also boosts access to emergency contraception. The mRNA coronavirus vaccines are most effective in people who are pregnant when administered during the first and third trimesters. That's according to new research from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Mass General Hospital. Dr. Andrea Edlow is a high-risk obstetrician at Mass General and co-author of the study. In the second trimester, still the immune response was present, but many you know, ways in which these antibodies do their job was a little bit more damped down. Dr. Edlow says this doesn't mean that women who are unvaccinated and pregnant should not get vaccinated during their second trimester. She says uh, pregnant women should be vaccinated as soon as possible. Prior studies have made clear the coronavirus vaccine is safe and protective for both the parent and the fetus. The Veterans Administration Clinic in Northampton will remain open after all. Earlier this year, the VA recommended closing the facility and shifting services to Springfield and Connecticut. Congressman Jim McGovern announced that decision was reversed after a group of bipartisan senators opposed the realignment plan. The VA says the plan was to make the system more cost-effective. And a private vigil will be held tonight for one of three teenagers killed in a car crash in Western Mass over the weekend. Tonight's vigil for 17-year-old Dominic Gardner of Oxford will take place in Webster. It starts at 7.30. 7.07 game time in Toronto tonight as the Sox and Blue Jays meet up for game two of their three-game series. It'll be Michael Waka against Toronto's Ross Stripling. Nice weather through midweek. Tonight, a few clouds around, about 60 for a low. Tomorrow, sunny and dry, around 84 degrees. Thursday, sunny again in the mid-80s tops. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There was stunning testimony on Capitol Hill today. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. She was the top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and she was by his side throughout the day on January 6th and in the days leading up to the riots. She gave a firsthand account of former President Trump's participation, saying he planned to lead a crowd to the Capitol knowing they were armed. As people rallied near the White House that day armed with automatic weapons and body armor, here's how she described Trump's reaction to learning they were being stopped at magnetometers take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from, they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. 
NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell followed today's hearing. Hi, Kelsey. Hi there. Let's start with that scene that played out at the rally near the White House before the riots at the Capitol. This was a turning point on January 6th. What new information did Hutchinson provide? Yeah, this was a turning point because there, the, the violence that moved to the Capitol really started as uh, as a, a rally there. And this was kind of a surprise hearing. This was information that we weren't expecting to hear this week. Um, we didn't know that Hutchinson was going to be testifying um, until late last night. Now, I should say she's only just now 25, and she was a senior advisor in the White House. She was very close to former President Trump and very close uh, to his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And she described a firsthand account of Trump and Meadows that day. She explained conversations she had with other top Trump advisors who were with the former president that day as well. You know, one of the most stunning moments to me was her account of what happened when Trump was told he could not go to the Capitol. She recounted a conversation with Tony Ornato, who oversaw all of the security at the White House. He described a scene in the president's limousine known as the Beast while the rally at the Ellipse was happening when his Secret Service detail, Bobby Engel, refused to let him join the crowd at the Capitol. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. She described hearing that he put his hands around Bobby Engel's neck. To be clear, she is describing a physical altercation that the president had with the head of his Secret Service protective detail after being told he couldn't go. Hands around his neck. Yeah. this, this She described his hands by his clavicle. This is unheard of. And, you know, she also described another moment where Trump's anger really exploded in the run-up to January 6th. This time it was after Trump learned that former Attorney General William Barr gave an interview where he said there was no election fraud. She described Trump leaving a chaotic room with ketchup splattering the walls and a broken plate after an explosion of anger. And she said it was not the first time Trump had had a similarly violent response. Now, we heard that cut of tape where the president seemed to express a view that people with weapons could go ahead and march to the Mm -hmm. Capitol. To what extent was he aware of his team's concerns about his participation in this violent scene? Well, according to Hutchinson, he was made aware several times by several different people. She describes Meadows saying that Trump was not interested in hearing their arguments and rebuffed any attempt to redirect Trump. Um, She also described struggling to get Meadows to listen or engage. She talked to about him staring at his phone and not paying attention. You know, at one point she talked about uh, Meadows shutting her out of a secure vehicle for 20 minutes as she tried to get him critical information from security advisors about the situation at the Capitol. She also described a stark warning from Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if... We make that movement happen. 
He also reportedly told Meadows there would be blood on his hands if he didn't get Trump to stop the riots. What about that chant, hang Mike Pence, Mm. that the rioters were chanting at the Capitol? Uh, What did we learn about Trump's reaction to that? Well, a reminder that we learned earlier in the testimony at previous hearings that those rioters were only about 40 feet away from Pence at one point. And Trump said that they were right and they weren't doing anything wrong. Um, We we heard that Hutchinson testified that Meadows told her that Trump didn't want to do anything to stop the rioters and that he thinks the quote was he thinks Mike deserves it. This hearing today raised a lot of new questions and opened a lot of new lines of questioning. So where's it likely to go from here? Well, uh, we have heard that this they could be continuing to pursue people who sought pardons. Hutchinson testified that both Meadows and uh, Trump advisor Rudy Giuliani asked for pardons. They joined a growing list, including Republican lawmakers who have sought pardons before and after the 6th. And she talked about witness intimidation, people trying to push what witnesses said in their depositions looked like intimidation. Uh, people spoke of loyalty and warned one witness that Trump reads every transcript. It's NPR's Kelsey Snell. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Abortion remains illegal in many states after the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, but some abortion providers have opened their doors again today after winning at least temporary victories in state courts. One of those states is Louisiana. A judge there issued a restraining order yesterday blocking that state's trigger bans. NPR's Sarah McCammon is there, and she joins us now from outside Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport, Louisiana. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Iwana. Sarah, Louisiana is just one of the many states in the U.S. with abortion bans on the books. Tell us about the legal fights that are playing out across this country. Right. So in response to many states activating these bans one way or another, lawyers with groups like the ACLU and the Center for Reproductive Rights have been challenging abortion bans in several states on different grounds. In many cases, they've been appealing to state constitutions, which they argue offer protections for abortion rights, even if the U.S. Constitution, according to the Supreme Court, may not. In Louisiana, they argued that it was unclear which of the multiple abortion bans were in place and also that those themselves are confusing. And it seems like there's been some success already. What does that mean for these clinics? Right. So far, abortions have resumed, at least for now, in Utah, at some clinics, I'm told, in Texas, and here in Shreveport, Louisiana. Staff members have spent the past day or so calling patients back for procedures, which they resumed today. Hope Medical, this is Kathleen. How may I help you? At Hope Medical Group for Women, things were almost back to normal this morning, at least a new normal. After shutting down on Friday in response to the Supreme Court's ruling, the clinic won a restraining order from a state judge on Monday and immediately began calling patients back. Thank goodness. I was just really happy to hear that I could still come. Jay, a patient who asked us to call her only by her first initial because she's worried about stigma in her small Texas town, was relieved when she got word she could still come today. At 27, she's a mom to three young boys already, She says she has a history of difficult pregnancies, which have landed her in the hospital again and again. I want to walk away from this feeling better because right now I feel uh, extremely sick and I'm unable to function and take care of my kids that I do have. Jay had been watching the Supreme Court closely and had scheduled a backup appointment at a clinic in New Mexico in case abortion became illegal here in Louisiana. I was really scared. I thought I was going to have to travel 12 hours to Albuquerque because of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I had a panic attack that day. 
But along with about three dozen other patients, she was able to get in for her procedure today. And then you'll fill out the card. Make sure your phone is on uh, silent for the time and no pictures. Staff members have been busy helping patients get checked in and making calls to schedule more procedures through next week. The judge has given them at least until July 8th when a hearing is scheduled. Even so, clinic workers are being incredibly careful. Outside in the parking lot, Jamie Cantrell, a volunteer escort, says she tells patients to back into the parking spaces so their license plates aren't available. Sometimes folks will come out with cameras and take photographs. Louisiana's Republican Attorney General has said he will fight to defend the state's abortion bans. Sarah Zagorski, Communications Director with Louisiana Right to Life, says she's confident abortion will soon be banned here. It's going to get dismissed and our Louisiana law will stand. There's nothing vague about our 2022 Reaffirmation of Human Life Protection Act. In our opinion, they're just really pulling at straws to try to keep their doors open. Clinic Administrator Kathleen Pittman acknowledges she may have to close her doors eventually, but in the nearly three decades she's worked here, she's learned to stay focused on what's in front of her now. It's just a way of life. I can't imagine coming to work in the morning and not having something hanging over my head. So we're concentrating on our patients right now, doing the best we can for them, and we'll deal with whatever we need to deal with as it comes. So, Sarah, what is the next step for these legal battles over abortion bans? Well, that's going to vary somewhat from state to state. Joanna Wright is an attorney representing the Hope Medical Group here in Shreveport. Here's what she said. Each state has a different statutory schema and a different trigger ban, but it is absolutely a strategy right now to be evaluating and challenging each of these trigger laws nationwide. And Wright argues that all of Louisiana's anti-abortion laws are unclear, and she says they're therefore out of step with the state constitution. She expects similar legal fights in other states. NPR's Sarah McCammon in Shreveport, Louisiana. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Singer R. Kelly is about to be sentenced nine months after a conviction on racketeering and sex trafficking charges and decades after abuse accusations first surfaced. When you look at the extent of the physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that he put these women and children through, I think a 25-year or more sentence is entirely appropriate. The long push for justice for R. Kelly's victims tomorrow on Morning Edition. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, what it was like to be on board a train as it derailed this week in Missouri. That story's still ahead. I'm Lisa Mullins on Wall Street. Stocks took a dive today. The Dow fell more than 1.5%, 490 points, to close at 30,947. S&P dropped 2% to settle at 3822. The Nasdaq fell 3% to finish the day at 11,182. Marketplace has details coming up in just about 10 minutes at 6.30. It's 6.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting blues rock musician Joe Bonamassa, live at the Leader Bank Pavilion on Saturday, August 13th. Ticket info at Ticketmaster.com. Former Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley has rejoined the Boston law firm Foley Hoag. 
Coakley had been working for e-cigarette maker Juul Labs. Her move comes days after federal regulators instituted a nationwide ban on the marketing and distribution of Juul vaping devices and flavor pods. A spokesperson for the law firm tells the Boston Globe the timing of Coakley's move is purely a coincidence. The forecast is coming up. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. In the forecast, nice tonight. A few clouds around, mostly clear, though, about 60 for a low. Tomorrow, sunny and dry, highs about 84 degrees. Thursday, sunny again in the mid-80s tops, then rising to the mid-90s on Friday with more sunshine. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker, if you have one, to play WBUR. WBUR supporters include the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the span of just a few hours, the country took two big steps in different directions on guns last week. On Thursday morning, the Supreme Court struck down a century-old law limiting concealed carry permits in New York. The decision signaled that state and local restrictions around the country might be next. Later in the day, the Senate passed the first major federal gun legislation in three decades. The bill would toughen up background checks for gun buyers between 18 and 21, expand a prohibition on gun purchases by those convicted of domestic abuse, and send hundreds of millions of dollars towards mental health and school safety resources. To understand the real-world impact of these changes, we're joined now by Daniel Webster of Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on policies intended to reduce gun violence. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. To start with the action in Congress, Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, uh, is one of the sponsors of the Senate legislation, and he says this bill will save thousands of lives. Is he right? Well, I certainly hope so. I definitely think that the overall package will lead to less gun violence and therefore translate into lives saved. How many really uh, will be determined on on how these policies get implemented? A lot of this is a spending bill. Uh, of pumping dollars into localities uh, to address gun violence, and how they actually use those resources will determine their ultimate impact. Which provision do you think is likely to potentially have the biggest impact? The things that I'm focused on right now is uh, addressing the uh, so-called dating partner gap in uh, domestic violence misdemeanor prohibitions. We know that domestic violence these days or intimate partner violence is much more likely to involve dating partners than than spouses. And if you look at the data, that's really where we should be focused. So I'm very pleased to see that gap addressed. Many of the provisions in the legislation seem designed to address mass shootings like the one in Uvalde, Texas. As horrific as those shootings are, they actually make up a small percentage of total gun deaths. Do you think that focus makes sense if we're trying to reduce gun violence around the country? Well, certainly mass shootings are important, even though they're small proportionally to the larger problem of gun violence. But I think you're absolutely right that what our country desperately needs 
is legislation and policy making that really looks at the totality of gun violence that affects our communities. One thing we did not talk about is that there is $250 million being allocated for community violence intervention programs. I think that definitely will translate into less gun violence in most uh, affected communities. I'm thinking $250 million, that's like not a lot per big city. <laughs> And that, I'm not sure how far that goes in a, in a country as big as the United States. Definitely, that's you're you're absolutely correct, and I think it's also important to sort of hold that in contrast to the 750 million that's directed more at the problem of uh, of mass shooting. So you can yeah. look at those two dollar allocations to see the mismatch of what gun violence looks like in America and what our policymakers are responding to. Even as the Senate was taking this step to limit gun violence, the Supreme Court expanded access to guns. How effective were concealed carry laws like the one in New York that the justices overturned? Well, they were effective. This is one of the most studied forms of gun policy. What that research shows is that when states do what the Supreme Court says now they must do, that that translates into more gun violence. Is there any way to look at the totality of these actions by Congress and the Supreme Court and judge what the upshot is, whether it will ultimately lead to more or less gun violence in the United States? Well, uh, I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't. But, you know, my gut tells me uh, that long term, uh, we may see more harm than good from what transpired in, in recent days. It's Daniel Webster, co-director of the Center for Gun Violence Solutions at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you. Thank you. When we first tried to reach Charles Hoffman yesterday afternoon, he was in the back of an ambulance. Hoffman was one of close to 300 people on board an Amtrak train. It was traveling from Los Angeles to Chicago yesterday when it collided with a dump truck in rural Missouri. The intersection was an unguarded crossing. No gates or bells, just a simple stop sign marked railroad crossing. Four people were killed, including the truck's driver, and over 100 were injured, including Charles Hoffman. He goes by Chad, and we were able to get him on the line today. Hi, Chad. Hello. First of all, I just want to ask, how are you doing? Are you doing all right? You know, I feel blessed to be alive, but bumped up, bruised up, and kind of tattered and sore. At 400 pounds, I had a hard time uh, getting out of that train yesterday. It was hell on earth. Okay. So... What was the moment of the collision like? Tell us what happened. Well, I, I was riding backwards, so that was a blessing because I didn't fly forward on the impact. But all I heard was a bam, bang, boom. And then all of a sudden the train dropped down, which I felt was probably when it went off track. And then it was like bam, 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 riding down the wood a little bit, the wood railroad ties. And then all of a sudden we started going over, going over. It felt like forever that went over. And then it hit down and broke out my window, and then it was all hell broke loose because I was laying down there on the bottom side with all the rocks coming through the window from the train track. You said it went over and, and over. Did your, your car overturn then? It overturned. It overturned, fell to the left, fell down all the way down and skidded, skidded, skidded forever, I felt like anyway. And when it did stop, what happened then? How did you get out of that train car? Well, to tell you the truth, I was laying there. I had a couple of pillows just to get my bearings and it was so dusty in there. I'm on oxygen, by the way. So I I, all I heard was, are you okay? Anybody in here? I'm like, I'm in here. And I, I had a long ways to go to get out, but I just kind of rolled my way out. I'm a big guy. 
then I kind of pushed my way up. I thought I felt like I had Hercules strength with my adrenaline pumping. I got to the top of the train. We were up there for quite a while because they weren't bringing any ladders for a long time. And then a big guy down on the bottom talked me into walking down the big rail wheels. And that was really hard. But at the last second, he's like, just let go. I'll catch you. Some big guy under me. Let go and I'll catch you. And I'm like, are you sure? I mean, <laughs> right, anyway, excuse me. But uh, he uh, caught me. So I was like. I got down. Hmm. What happened after you got out? What happened then? They finally got me to the hospital. They checked me in. They got me in quick because they thought I was having cardiac cardiac symptoms because of my heart rate was so high. My blood pressure was really elevated. I had the cold sweat, so they thought something was really wrong. So they got me in, and actually it was just everything checked out for the most part, and then it was a long day in the ER. Hmm. Chad, not everyone chooses to travel by train when they do. What made you choose Amtrak for the trip that you took yesterday? Absolutely. Good question. At 400 pounds, I can't really fly. If I did, I'd have to buy two seats. Probably I can't afford that. So mainly because I can't fly. I mean, I did enjoy Amtrak. This is the third time I've done it. I will say I'll never be on a train again for many years, many, many years. Mm. The whole night when I was trying to fall asleep, I kept getting flashbacks and like visuals and things running through my head and it made it very hard to sleep. But I'm okay, I'm alive and I'm sitting in a recliner actually drinking a Diet Coke and actually feeling averagely decent right now. So I guess that's a blessing. That's Chad Hoffman. He was aboard the Amtrak train that derailed in rural Missouri. Thanks so much, Chad. Glad you're safe. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Downtown Boston, celebrating Boston Harbor Fest with live music and entertainment, a classic car show, arts and crafts market, a parade, and reading by Boston's youth of Frederick Douglass's iconic Fourth of July speech at 1 p.m. on July 4th in downtown Boston. More at downtownboston.org.